Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. For all the inside information about big tech censorship and what's happening today, that's all explained in my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Today in my podcast, if you've already had coronavirus, should you get the coronavirus vaccine? Should be an easy question with an easy answer, but it's not. And wait till you hear who's behind some major disinformation. Well, it is hard to know exactly what to tackle in this podcast and what to address because there's so much to talk about that has to do with misinformation and disinformation and confusing information when it comes to coronavirus, the coronavirus vaccine, coronavirus treatments. And of course, the trick always is there are very powerful interests out there that take those who speak frankly, I'm talking about researchers, journalists, and others, and honestly about their research or about the factual basis for opinions that they've concluded. There are those who are pouncing and ready to smear them, misconstrue their comments, call them anti-vaccine if it has anything that touches upon the vaccine in a way that's not seen as positive or helpful to the industry or its interests. And maybe that's a good first thing to talk about, that when I'm discussing anything that touches upon the coronavirus vaccine, whether we're looking at adverse events reported afterwards, potential shortages, who maybe should or should not get the vaccine according to experts, I'm not making a personal recommendation. I'm not qualified to. In fact, quite a few people have asked me what I think about it, what they should do, And really, there are points and counterpoints. It's a very individual decision, according to all scientific experts and the CDC. They don't say that everybody can or should get the vaccine or any vaccine, because if you've looked at any of the literature or paid attention at all, and I think if you're listening to this, maybe you have, you know that for any medicine, it could be helpful to a lot of people. It can sometimes harm others. Let's take penicillin. Who would want a world without penicillin right now? But for some people, in rare instances, if they're allergic to penicillin, it can be very harmful. It's the same with any medicine. It's the same with vaccinations as well. So I'm certainly not in a position to make a recommendation for any individual. But I can tell you what experts are saying. I can give you points. I can tell you what studies say. I can give you counterpoints. You should be doing your own research on these items and not just turning probably to one person or even one expert's opinion because there are a lot of conflicting opinions and a lot of admitted unknowns. This is why I think it's a problem when I hear news reporters crossing over from journalism into advocacy. They're making blanket statements, and this is because they don't know enough. They're making blanket statements that say things like, everybody needs to go get their vaccine, or not enough people are getting vaccinated. They really have no basis on which to form those conclusions, and I think being an advocate as a reporter is not a good idea when you're talking about this sort of a medical issue, again, with so many unknowns and differing opinions and individual situations. What works for somebody or what's right for one person may not be right for the next. And that is 
admitted by scientific experts. They don't say everybody should get the vaccine. I really think reporters ought to stick to journalism rules on issues like this. It's as important as ever when you're talking about covering coronavirus, medical issues, vaccination issues. You can quote what other people are saying. You can talk about your own individual investigations if you've dug deeply into something. But in general, to take an advocacy viewpoint and make these vast general proclamations when really they have no firsthand information, but it's almost as if they think they're being almost patriotic or something, it borders on irresponsible. So do your research, consult with experts, look online, don't just do a Google search, maybe go to DuckDuckGo and find things that won't turn up on Google. They're censoring a lot of information now, including factually true information that's off the narrative. Consult with your doctor or doctors, the medical experts that you trust, and figure out what's right for you in your own situation at this point in time. The next thing I wanna touch upon is something a bit frightening, and it has to do with other things we've spoken about in recent podcasts, the increasing control over or manipulation of our information when it comes to nearly every aspect of our lives. Well, it comes into play with science too. And I covered this story a couple of years ago on Full Measure. The former head of the New England Journal of Medicine, very prestigious medical journal, Dr. Marsha Angel, as mainstream as it can get, affiliated with Harvard Medical School, she actually stepped forward and said that much of the science in peer-reviewed published journals today is not to be believed because this information, these studies, these publications, she argues, have been entirely co-opted by pharmaceutical interests. And if you understand how deeply these conflicts of interest go, I covered a lot of those stories and learned about them as an investigator for CBS News over the years, how articles are ghostwritten by pharmaceutical companies that hire middlemen to get a valid doctor to sign on as if they wrote an article, pay them a fee, maybe $1,500 to sign their name to it, to promote a particular medicine or pump up a market for a particular medicine before it's introduced. There are so many different tactics that are used. And there are so many ways that studies are conducted today that I learned about very different from a couple of decades ago. It used to be that studies were generally published whether the findings were good or bad for the sponsor or for the drug that was being studied. And then some years ago, it got to the point where the pharmaceutical industry did not want the bad information published and learned how to control these researchers, including academic researchers, through contracts, confidentiality agreements, through control of the data in different centers so no single research group involved in a study had access to all the data and could publish about it if they found something negative. All kinds of tactics to make sure that some information never gets out or that what does get out is the most positive spin on a particular medicine or item. That's why I do read a lot of these studies and information reporting on them with a grain of salt because I know in general, I've concluded based on experience and insiders who I've spoken to that the information that finally gets out to the public is a very rosy version of something that happened or of a study, or even if it exposes perhaps side effects or potential problems, sometimes those problems turn out to be quite a bit worse than what was acknowledged publicly when you dig into the data or when time goes by. This is how many studies are done today. 
Years ago, I covered a very important study that was conducted to try to find a vaccine for AIDS, which has still not been accomplished today. And when a researcher discovered that there was potential harm coming to the people involved in the study, the study had to be stopped midstream. And the researcher thought it was very important to publish that information so that any other research that was similar could look at the safety information and also be informed and perhaps save lives or save people in studies or save people down the road from potentially getting hurt. But he wasn't allowed to publish it because this was one of those early cases I knew about where the drug company, the vaccine maker in this case, forbade him from publishing the negative information, even though it was supposed to help greater science and help the public health. And this scientist thought it was so important that it be published anyway, he went ahead and published what he had. He couldn't get access to the full data because, as I mentioned, they had spread out the data centers and the way the study was being conducted so that no single research group had access to all of the data and could really publish a comprehensive paper. But because this was deemed so important to the public health, the medical journal that published it agreed to go ahead and publish it with partial data and partial information, knowing that this researcher was being prevented from getting access to everything. And then the researcher was threatened with a multi-million dollar lawsuit from the pharmaceutical company for publishing the information when he had signed some sort of confidentiality agreement. Fast forward to today, the control of studies and science has grown stronger and stronger. And in addition to Dr. Marsha Angel, formerly of the New England Journal of Medicine, saying that you can't believe a lot of the science in peer-reviewed published medical journals today, she was joined by the editor-in-chief of Lancet Medical Journal, Richard Horton. He wrote an editorial piece that said, likewise, much of the science published in journals today is not to be believed. And they're not just talking about fringe journals. In fact, some journals that would be considered more fringe probably have more freedom to publish some studies and findings that are outside the narrative in some instances than these journals that you've heard more about. So I've been talking to a lot of scientists to try to learn more about the facts when I hear stories about coronavirus, COVID-19, the vaccine, and so on, treatments, therapeutics. And the scientists I'm talking to are peer-reviewed published scientists. They're mainstream scientists. They work for the government. They work for prestigious academic institutions. They receive government funding. These are not fringe people. And one by one, they are telling me, unprompted, that they're very concerned about what's happening to science and how, particularly with coronavirus, that they are not allowed to talk about certain things in public, even if scientifically supported, even if legitimately debatable, that they are supposed to keep their mouths shut. And they said that they cannot believe what's happened in the public discourse. A quote from one of the scientists that I spoke to last week, he simply said, Cheryl, science is broken and somebody needs to fix it. Again, this is not just one scientist I'm hearing this from, it's a number of scientists. And they're all sounding pretty much the same. When I'm asking them for facts off camera, behind the scenes and phone conversations and so on, and they're telling me something that is different than the prevailing information maybe you're hearing in the media or that some public health officials are putting out, I'm saying to them, well, why don't you clarify that or why don't you put out this information? 
And again, one by one, they're saying they will be smeared. There's fear of reprisal from the institutions where they work who've told them not to speak out on certain things. A couple of them specifically said they haven't spoken out for fear of appearing to contradict Dr. Fauci. This is obviously not how science is supposed to work, and it's not in the interest of public health. So I just mentioned that so that you know these conversations are happening in the background. And doesn't it remind you of the news where certain views aren't to be uttered or covered or held? And doesn't it remind you of what's happening with social media censorship where third parties, powerful interests who influence the third parties in social media and big tech are deciding whose truth to believe or which views are not even to be heard? And along those lines, here's something that a lot of people aren't reporting in this atmosphere or environment that's probably important for people to know. And I have covered some of this issue on my television program, Full Measure. You can look for these stories at fullmeasure.news. Find the replays anytime. I've been interviewing the Fort Detrick lead virologist, Dr. John Dye, who's terrific at explaining complicated scientific and technical issues to people like me, people who aren't scientists and really need it spelled out for them. He's good at that. But it reminded me of an issue I spoke with him about, which was immunity. And he talked about how long immunity lasts if you catch coronavirus, how long it will last afterwards. He talked about natural immunity for people who will never get coronavirus or never show any symptoms. And he talked about immunity that comes with various vaccines. And I think that there's an issue that's not been well reported. And that's the question of how long immunity lasts after you get a case of coronavirus and or after you get vaccinated. There was a quote from Dr. Fauci very early on in this pandemic where he said, if this virus acts like every other virus we know about, then if you get coronavirus afterwards, your immunity will last a long, long time. Now, we didn't know for sure because we were only out a matter of weeks from the first people who we knew of who had coronavirus, and there was no way to have a comprehensive look at how many people were getting reinfected. But that message seemed to morph over the months. It went from, hey, we think that immunity will last a long, long time, to this sort of question mark where what was being reported and discussed more frequently was as if we really couldn't count on hardly any protection after a case of coronavirus. That's how it started to be discussed. Remember when President Trump had a case of coronavirus and at first he was thinking he was good to go and then he corrected that and was saying publicly, well, they tell me maybe it doesn't last so long. That was sort of a modification of the original message and maybe legitimate because we really didn't have the data. Well, now coming out to beyond a year from the time we know about the first coronavirus cases, scientists have looked at the question, and so far, a year out, reinfections are so rare, documented reinfections, that they are written up as an anomaly when they happen. So by and large, it's considered, according to scientists, that nearly everybody who has a coronavirus infection, whether asymptomatic or not, is protected for a pretty long time. Now we know of at least a year or so. As time goes on, we'll know if that lasts two years, three years, or maybe drops off pretty fast after the one year. But the reason I'm mentioning this is when the discussion of the vaccine came into play, many reporters who seem uninformed 
would talk about the vaccine as if it was the solution to this immunity question, instead of understanding that because the vaccines hadn't even yet been invented, there was even less information about how long immunity would last after vaccination. So we knew after coronavirus infection that maybe you get a year out of it and perhaps more, but we only knew with the vaccines at the time the two were approved for emergency use that you would get two weeks to two months of immunity, maybe two to three months. Now as time has gone on, they can tell, okay, maybe you get four months immunity for sure out of the vaccines if you're someone for whom they work. And hopefully, and maybe, this will go further out. This will go six months. This will go a year. But I will tell you, Dr. John Dye cautioned that RNA vaccines, these are the ones that are in use now here in the United States, according to him, they don't work as quickly as other vaccines and they don't last as long. He said we could expect to have to have boosters if this is the vaccine you got six months, maybe a year, maybe longer. And he said it may be different for some people than others because everybody could react slightly differently. So my point is, yes, it's uncertain how long we are immune if we have a case of coronavirus, but it is even more uncertain how long immunity lasts after the vaccine. But because people don't seem to understand this and because of the way the message has been put out, I think by those who are watching out for vaccine industry interests, it's almost as if we are led to believe it's uncertain if you have coronavirus, but if you get the vaccine, you're all set. And that's not the case. Again, this is not advocating for one thing or another. I'm simply telling you scientifically, according to the studies and according to the scientists who know this stuff, that immunity after vaccination is a big question mark. Hopefully it works a long time for the people that the vaccine works for, but we just don't know yet. And we have somewhat more data about immunity after an actual coronavirus infection. Why am I talking about all of this right now? There's a very good reason, and if you hang on, I'll let you know why after a short break. We're back, and we are talking about immunity after a coronavirus infection, or and immunity after the coronavirus vaccine. There is a big controversy going on, a scientific controversy that maybe you haven't heard much about, but it's pretty important. It's the question of whether if you've had coronavirus, if you've tested positive for the antibodies, or if you know you had it, you were told you had it, or you got sick, and you have some immunity presumed, should you get the vaccine too? And the recommendation from many public health officials and from CDC, the official recommendation has been, yes, go ahead and get the vaccine. And the rationale is, we don't know how long your immunity lasts after you've had an infection. But they don't add the part two that we talked about before the break. They don't add, we also don't know how long the immunity lasts after the vaccine. And we know even less about that than we do about your immunity after your infection. But okay, Let's say that's a reasonable thing to do, and it might be, depending on your individual calculation. There's a second thing that's coming into play in this controversy. There's a vaccine shortage in many parts of the country. So if there is a limited number of vaccine doses available, should the people who've already had coronavirus and are presumed to be in that immune period, 
should they really get the vaccine right now, even if CDC says that's a good idea because maybe it offers some additional protection? Should they be rushing to get the vaccine now when there are people in the high-risk category, elderly people who could get very, very sick if they get coronavirus or other people at risk, when there are people who can't get the vaccine because they're not enough, should a 30-year-old who's had coronavirus and is considered immune be getting a dose of vaccine? That's the controversy. And when pressed, even CDC acknowledges that's probably not a good idea. But in some phone recordings that I'm going to tell you more about in a moment, a CDC scientist acknowledged they don't really want to put the message out there to tell people who've had coronavirus not to get the vaccine. Why is that? Well, they would say because it could do them good and we don't know how long their immunity lasts. But if you've dealt with CDC as long as I have, you know that they have been caught fudging the facts, if not completely misrepresenting them in the past, in order to promote heavy vaccination compliance. And I'm not just talking about coronavirus here, I'm talking about in the past. I did the expose back during the swine flu supposed epidemic that showed CDC was well aware based on lab tests that there was very little swine flu in circulation when they were claiming there was an epidemic. In fact, they at the time instructed people to quit testing for swine flu and just presume that everything that came in that looked sort of like the flu was swine flu. So that jacked the numbers up and made it look like we had a huge epidemic. But when I used Freedom of Information Act requests and researched all 50 states because CDC wouldn't give me this public information, when I found the results of the lab test that CDC had at the time, that very few of the cases that were presumed to be swine flu or thought to be swine flu actually were swine flu. And CDC knew this. I also covered the story at CBS when there was a definitive government study conducted to try to prove that flu shots were effective in the elderly. And believe me, I was as surprised as any of you probably are or were to hear this. Flu shots are not effective or not proven effective in the elderly. But the government set out to do a definitive study to try to say that they were because no study had ever turned out to show that at the time. And they kept just saying to themselves according to the scientists I interviewed, well, the studies must be wrong because we know flu shots work in elderly people. Instead of believing their own science, they just kept redoing the studies and redesigning them to try to show a benefit. And again, this is according to the scientists I interviewed who conducted the study in question. Ultimately, the definitive study that they conducted to once and for all try to prove that flu shots work for the elderly, that study showed the opposite, that as flu shots became more and more ubiquitous among tens of millions and hundreds of millions of elderly people, that more of them, not fewer of them, died. More of them died. The researchers who were good researchers who worked for the government told me they were as shocked as anybody because they said, if anything, they went into their own study with a bias of assuming flu shots worked and tried to adjust for all kinds of confounding factors to see if maybe it was just looking like the flu shots didn't work, but they were missing something. In the end, they had to throw up their hands and say, they told me, flu shots don't work in the elderly. But when that conclusion came and the paper was published, and you can find that online, just nobody reported it, the government would not let me interview the scientists who worked on the paper. And I was working for CBS News at the time. They didn't want this information put out there. But I found one scientist who was not under the government's thumb who did talked to me for my report for CBS News and said all of the things that I just told you. 
So when you've dealt with CDC on these issues, and there's many more just like it, as long as I have, you understand, much to your surprise, at least I was surprised, that these public health officials are not always being completely truthful and factual about the information they're putting out regarding the public health. And that brings me to, I guess, the point of today's discussion, which is with public health officials, many of them, including CDC, seeming to recommend that people who've had coronavirus, even though they're presumed immune for some period of time, go ahead and get vaccinated, even though there's even less evidence as to how long immunity lasts after vaccination if the vaccine works for you. And even though there's said to be a shortage of vaccine, there's one more piece of the puzzle or the controversy or the equation to consider, which is that CDC has been falsely claiming on its website and in statements to doctors that the studies for the two vaccines that are approved under emergency use in the U.S. falsely claim that the studies show there was a benefit for people who've had coronavirus to get the vaccines, that there was high efficacy or an effectiveness proven in the studies for this set of people. In fact, the studies don't show that at all. They show the opposite. Why would CDC include a sentence in its guidance, and its very important guidance from the Immunization Advisory Committee that doctors refer to, that people think is the gold standard of the latest information? Why would they have a sentence in there that falsely claims, for example, that the Pfizer study showed the vaccine was effective, highly efficacious for people who'd had coronavirus, was a benefit to them? Again, that's not what the Pfizer study says. In fact, if you can look at the data in the Pfizer study, it was not designed to answer the question as to what would happen with people who'd had coronavirus, but there was a subset of population that fit into the category that they went ahead and analyzed. And you know what? It showed the opposite, that more people who'd had coronavirus and then got the vaccine ended up with reinfection than those who didn't get the vaccine. Now, according to scientists, you cannot draw a conclusion from that because the sample was small. The study was not designed to answer that question. They probably went ahead and did an analysis hoping to find hints of something positive, but they didn't. They found something negative. It's not enough. In fact, scientists don't think it means that if you had coronavirus and you get the vaccine that it gives you a reinfection or makes you more susceptible, but certainly you cannot say that it proved to be a benefit for that set of people, and yet that's exactly what CDC has been saying. Why would they make such a statement and leave that up on their website even after the false information was drawn to their attention? I hope you will watch my Sunday TV program, Full Measure Sunday, that's January 31st, for a deep dive into that issue very specifically, and check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more on that. But continuing along this vein, what we're talking about right now, think about the impact on the limited vaccine supply if CDC is telling people that studies show if you've had coronavirus, you could benefit from the vaccine. There are an estimated 100 million Americans who have had coronavirus, either an active infection or an infection that has given them some measure of immunity. Maybe they were asymptomatic. 100 million people. But if that 100 million people are being advised by CDC based on faulty information 
that a study says it will do them some good to get the vaccine, if they're rushing to get the vaccine, 100 million people, when there's a limited supply, is it depriving people who really need the vaccine far more, who don't have any immunity and may have risk factors that make them very susceptible to the worst effects of a coronavirus infection? Numerous scientists have been telling me in recent weeks that they think this is highly irresponsible and that CDC's guidance and the incorrect information that it's been putting out there is actually making the shortage worse, making people rush to get the vaccine who have no proven benefit and perhaps depriving others who need it more. What would be the impact if CDC decided to say that if you've had coronavirus, you may not need the vaccine, at least not need it right now. Think of how that impacts the market and the potential market for a vaccine. We have a population of something like 330 million people. If one third of those have already had coronavirus and counting, it quickly gets to a point that you don't have much of a market for a vaccine if you say people who've had coronavirus don't need it. And eventually, as more and more people have infections, either active infections or asymptomatic infections from which they recover or develop immunity, you've pretty much zeroed out your market for the vaccine, unless your position is that those people need the vaccine anyway, just as frequently, including boosters that are going to be coming down the pike as other people. I spoke to one person who put a number to it, by the way, and he said, if the government is giving $50 to a vaccine company for a course of vaccine, and there are 100 million people in America that no longer need it if you decide that they don't need it if they already had a coronavirus infection, and because the studies so far showed no benefit to them, then you have $50 times 100 million people, which is $5 billion. $5 billion of what this government official called a misallocated resource because that's taxpayer money. Our money is being used to pay the vaccine industry and the vaccine companies for these doses of vaccine. So if we are encouraging people for which there's no proven benefit, people who've already had coronavirus to go ahead and get the vaccine anyway, that's money down the tubes. Now, I'm going to provide a counterpoint to the things that I've said to you and there could be a benefit proven down the road. Let's say further studies and further analysis shows that people who've had coronavirus and get the vaccine get a better benefit. Maybe down the road we'll see that the vaccine provides an immunity benefit that lasts longer than the immunity that people are getting from the coronavirus infection. That would be something positive and an additional reason to recommend people who've had infection go ahead and get a vaccine. But the point is, we're not there yet. As of the recording of this podcast, there's no scientific evidence from the studies done so far that show any benefit to people who've had coronavirus to getting the vaccine. And if they're rushing out to get vaccine because they think there is, because trusted public health officials at CDC have told the public and told doctors there is a benefit, have made this incorrect false claim, then that impacts this vaccine supply at a time when shortages are being reported across the country. And again, I spoke to scientists who said maybe eventually when there is enough vaccine for everybody who wants it to get it, 
You can have the luxury of saying, go ahead and get it anyway, even if you've had coronavirus. But they said right now, it's irresponsible not to prioritize the limited supply to give to the people who are most vulnerable, who need it the most, and for whom the studies say it does work and there is a proven benefit. Back to my full measure investigation that will dig more deeply into the specifics of the CDC's misinformation when one government official brought this mistake that CDC had made, this incorrect information, to their attention very explicitly. One defense a CDC official provided was that this information was provided in a way or in a place that most people in the public don't go and read. In other words, more toward clinicians and medical professionals. I would say that's almost worse, that they've put false information and material that our doctors and our experts rely on because then you go to the doctor and you ask, should I get a coronavirus vaccine if I've already had coronavirus? And the doctor going on CDC's incorrect information says, why, yes, the studies clearly show a benefit for people like you. So I think in a way it's almost worse that they're giving this information to medical professionals who believe what the CDC has to say without question. To wrap it up for today, I will say what I said earlier. It's important that you get educated and do a bit of research, consult the experts you trust, talk to your doctors, figure out what makes sense for your unique circumstance because scientists are in agreement on one thing. There is no one size fits all calculation for who should get a vaccine and who shouldn't. We don't know how long immunity lasts after a coronavirus infection. We don't know how long immunity lasts at this point after the vaccine either. The two vaccines that we have so far could have different results once all the data comes in, in terms of how long they last and who is the best candidate for each vaccine. So I hope this just got you thinking, asking questions all in the spirit of making the best decision for your health and sorting through a lot of misinformation that's out there. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you will check out the website justthenews.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Leave a good review, share it with your friends, and check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. If you like this sort of reporting and discussion, you will love Full Measure too. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. <laughs>